out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician and writer and singer Ian Masters, who I spoke to to find out more about life, love and poetry and much, much more. One time member of the band Pale Saints from the late 80s and 90s, but has gone on to a very productive and interesting career in music and has recently brought out an album, um, I believe he goes as Isolated Gate, and the album is called Universe in Reverse. So I will put that link below in the notes. But anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Ian, it's over to you. My first, the first record that I can remember buying, the, th- the first two records, I don't know which one came first, they were both in 73, um, the Doctor Who theme, Delia Derbyshire, which had the most appalling B-side. I think it was called Reg. I think it was a song called Reg. Absolute rubbish. Right. Um, yeah, the, the, other, the other seven inch that I bought was uh, Ballroom Blitz. That was a very cool, cool, cool purchase, actually, at and that point. At that age, I was I, I didn't know. That the members of Sweet were all men, right? I thought that I thought that some of them, at least some of them, were women. So I was I was in for a bit of a shock. You were there. You go. <laughs> but then you know, top of the pops. I was thinking about this the other day because obviously it was one of those classic kind of programs on TV, and there was only three channels that your parent you'd all watch sometimes with your parents in the room, and they would be horrified by it. And um, that that kind of world doesn't really exist anymore, does it? But they would sort of be there just to be annoyed by the long-haired men with comments like, you can't tell if they're a man or woman anymore. And it was a bit strange because, frankly, when you looked at, you know, members of the glam world, they were very blokey, weren't they, apart from Bowie? They, they, they didn't know the difference and neither did nine-year-old me. No, obviously not. <laughs> and to be honest, it, it it does it really matter? No, we don't does it care. Matter? And I think that's that's a that's a good thing. Yes. No. That's a... People people don't care these days, and um, I think that's where it should be. Yes, this is true. And were your parents at all? Did they have any musical influence on your life at all? Um, my mum was a music lover, but not particularly opinionated about it. My dad. Um, with whom I disagreed on almost anything at all, um, introduced me to Ella Fitzgerald, Burt Bacharach, and Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Nice. So, for the, the, those three musicians are still among my favorite musicians to this day. Yes. So, uh, an interesting trio. But I think you could you could say that my dad's record collection, which was not very large, um, did have a huge impact on me. Yes, absolutely. You didn't have any older brothers or sisters who influenced any of your musical moments as well. I have an older sister, and the only the only piece of music I can remember. Uh, that I liked of hers was she had a uh, 
a cassette tape of A Nice Pair by Pink Floyd. And the first time I heard Lucifer Sam on that on that cassette, I freaked out. But apart from that, you know, she was uh, listening to things like Bread and uh, probably The Carpenters or... But no, she didn't really... She didn't help. No, she didn't she help. Didn't have, she didn't have a, a huge music collection, which she forbade me to... To, to play while she was out. <laughs> no, this is true. Or anything, br- or anything ridiculous like that. No, no, absolutely. So as we trundled on through the 70s, you know, come to sort of the punk period, did that have any bearing on your life at that stage or were you a bit too young for punk? I was 13. I'm, yes. a, I'm, I'm about the same age as you and it had an, a, a huge impression on me. Um. One of my friends who became a Queen's Council um, went out and bought the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen, Anarchy in the UK, uh, the adverts, Gary Gilmore's Eyes. And I just, I completely fell in love with, you know, that that music. Incredibly, incredibly important. Up until then, I've been listening to ABBA, which is... you know, good music, um, but it wasn't anything that I could relate to. Whereas punk rock and the imagination and the creativity that came out of punk is something which I think has stayed with me my whole life. To, to, to me, I, I, I would, I would say I'm a, I'm a punk rocker because I've never let my lack of ability stand in the way of ideas and my my incompetence at playing various instruments. My, my attitude to it is I can play any instrument I want to play and I'll play it in, in a way that only I can play it. Yes. And that, that, that attitude comes directly from punk, I firmly believe. Yeah. What was your first gig you went to? Blondie at the Hammersmith Odeon, supported, unfortunately, by the boyfriends and not television. Right. Never mind. So 16 years old, uh, Blondie, Hammersmith Odeon, blew my head off. Wow. This is what what going to a gig is like. Give me more. Give me more. Yes. And after that, I couldn't couldn't get enough of uh, going to gigs and, you know, Whenever I had the money, whenever the opportunity arose, and living close to London, um, it was just what you know a train ride away. So yeah, yes. Well, that was lucky. I was I was born in the depths of East Anglia, so really punk never sort of happened at all, and uh, it was a bit of a heavy metal world of status quo and um, denim, really, and motorbikes. It was culturally, it wasn't great. So. Um, I can't we, believe that you survived with all four limbs. No, it was you couldn't admit that you liked anything that wasn't rock, really. I mean, even yeah, yeah, even even admitting or looking like you enjoyed the beat, you know, that first album that came out, just can't stop it. I mean, you couldn't sort of admit that you liked it or even wanted to look like you were appreciating well, it because kids are kids are tribal like that, aren't they? Very tribal they, in those days. They used days. to be tribal, and but now they're not, are they? They they're just. They just listen to all genres of music yes. without 
being particularly well, maybe they are i don't know but yeah it, I think I think I, I guess on a very simple I haven't really thought about this, but on a simplistic level, I suppose now people just insult each other on social media. In those days, you had to be quite cute or clever and quite quick to be able to run run away if someone was chasing you down down the you know country lanes or you know just yeah. in case you got spotted. So I think that was kind of how you had to survive a bit in those days because most people at the age of sixteen left school and went into the either. The factory doing chickens or the jeans factory if you're a woman and then you got pregnant and had babies and that was kind of the careers and the careers teacher must have had a really cushy time during the 70s because there was no there wasn't any other options so there you have it there was there was there was no going to work in a factory for me i i had i had the i had the tough path i was forced to go to university no god that was tough that was hard wasn't it so when you got to 16 then 1980 did you then go to sixth form and then two years later go to you yeah to, to yeah. uni yeah there you go i didn't have i didn't have any choice in the matter why was that because my father was a strict man he said you will you will take your a levels you will learn latin then you will go to university and after that you will become a lawyer and so I, I studied I studied law at university. I got my degree, and then uh, I moved to Leeds and went on the dole. Right, the classic one. So this was kind of eighty five time, eighty six. You finished education. Yeah. yeah. So, but you were at university during the golden period of indie pop from eighty three to eighty seven, weren't you? The years of the Smiths, as I like to say. The Smiths. The Smiths. The, the golden Smith. period, the golden period of the eighties was the Smiths, wasn't Smith, it? Let's... The Smiths, the Smiths. Yes. I okay. Now I remember the Smiths. I saw them at the Fighting Cocks Pub in Balsall Heath in Birmingham on their probably nineteen eighty three mini tour, and they were okay, but they weren't as good as Eilis in Gaza, who I'd seen a few months before. And Eilis in Gaza, as you probably know, because you're an indie specialist, were a <laughs> two-piece unit. And at the gigs, uh, the singer would sing and play guitar. The bass player would play drums and, and bass at the same time. Wow. How, how fucking cool is that? That is very cool, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll never get I'll never get there, but um, to to witness it, the Smiths were okay, but Alice and Gaza were absolutely incredible. So that, what you uh, what university what university did you go to? Birmingham, Birmingham. So during that period, Birmingham. This is it. But so were you kind of engrossed in the world of the Nightingales and we've got Fuzzbox and we're going to use it and Bindaloo Records? Did you... I remember the Nightingales were a thing. And um, yeah, yeah, no. One of my one of my friends at uh, university became a guitarist for Yeah, Yeah, No. Um, don't really recall Fuzzbox at all, except for the name. No, there you go. So when you got to uni and you were sort of being hot housed to this great career, which was going to have a fantastic pension and lots of bonuses, um, did you did you study hard or were you thinking mm, by the second year there's life outside this these kind of uh, academic walls? I I had no idea what I was doing there by the by the end of the first year, but I thought 
well i don't i don't know what i want to do i don't I, I, there's there's no particularly no other course that i, I really want to change to so i'll just continue i'll just continue and get it over with yes there you is, go which is what i did and then instead of going to law school i just uh, moved to leeds went on the dole had a had a nice time on the dole for a couple of years and then decided that if I was ever really going to do anything musical, I would have to get off my ass and arrange it for myself. So I put a, I put an ad in a in a local record shop, uh, asking for people to play music with, and uh, one of the original members of Pale Saints. Uh, answered the ad and I went to meet them. Yes. And who which we one? started making horrendous noises in a in a in a practice room at a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Blimey. In, uh, in Weatherby. Yes. And when did you the cows? Well, yes, they're they're quite they're quite relaxed actually as animals go. Did you um at that stage, when did you buy a musical instrument? When did the, the bass guitar appear in your life? When when it when it transpired that Pale Saints needed a, a bass guitar, right? So were you, were you never, on some? I, I was going to say, had, were you on some sort of mission at this stage? I, I'm not allowed to talk about my mission, right? Um, I'd started playing the guitar. Um, I, was, I, I was given a guitar by a neighbour of my grandmother's at, at the age of thirteen, and I taught myself to play that. Um, so when it became fairly obvious that Pale Saints needed a bass player, I just, I went out and bought a bass and had at it. Yes, there you go. And was, um, because actually kind of it was around that time, I think it was probably a few years later that I saw the band on a double bill with Lush at the Norwich Arts Centre. Was that your first tour around the country? Probably, yeah, I think it, it would have been, yeah, yeah. Yes, and when, and just before... That was a good that, tour, that was a good I, I really, at, at that time, I was, uh, I was, um, I, I loved the, the you know, the, the first album's worth of songs that Lush made, so... You know, to be to be playing um, gigs with a band that you actually whose music you love was um, that was yeah it was great. Yes, I know. I mean, it was quite. So when when the when the four members of the band got together, did did the sound? Did you have an idea of what the sound was that you were going to go for, or did it sort of happen organically? At the, at the beginning, there was only three members of the band. The first album. When you when you saw us with Lush, we would have had it would either have been a three piece or we'd have we might have had um, Ashley Horner from the Edsel Auctioneer playing extra extra guitar. But to answer the question, um, we had no I I don't think you know there was there was no that there was no manifesto written. It was just start making a noise and try and make it personal yes and and it was kind of an interesting period wasn't it because the 
the sort of the 87 moment in life where, you know, the Smiths break up, horrendous, and the indie pop world seemed to change a bit. There was that next kind of... Have the Smiths broken up? 87, I'm afraid. Yes, they, they oh, broke up. I, mean, I, I must have missed that. You missed what it. What a shame. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, but then you, you've got that next bit, the but, next but wave. Arvo Park released the, released the, the Arbos LP in, in 1987. So surely that makes up for the Smiths breaking up. Yeah, by by the last album, we weren't that bothered, really, to be and, honest. Yeah, it'd be you know. from, to, to, to leap from the Smiths to Arvo Pert was just a, a tiny little skip, surely. <laughs> it was, you know, if, if one's imagination. Did you, I mean, but the thing is, back in the late 80s, there was a bit of a shift in that musical world, mainly, well, not mainly, but there was the sort of the, the world of ecstasy came along. There was the dance scene that came along. There was the yeah. Seattle grunge scene. And then, you know, the, there was bands like the Pell Saints, Silverfish, the Faith Healers, you know, my bloody Valentine, people like that. Did you did you feel that, um, you know, how to sort of get a sound that you felt like was going to be listened to or, you know, at least relevant to what was happening on that musical landscape? No, I think we, we probably made the only music we were capable of making. And so it, when we had our five seconds of fame, um, it was because... We were we were making the right noise at the right time. Yes, and did you and did the sign into four AD? Did that happen quite e easily or smoothly? We sent out demos like all bands used to do at the time, and we had interest from uh, Egg Records in Glasgow, uh, One Little Indian, and Four AD, and. We chose 4AD because we because we were fans of the label, liked the music. Um, it seemed like the best choice. So Ivo phoned me up in in Leeds, and the first thing I said to him was "fuck off," <laughs> <laughs> because I thought, as you would, you would think um, it was one of your mates calling and just trying to uh, wind you up. Yes, so I said "fuck off." You're not Ivo Watts Russell. And it was. <laughs> so uh, uh, a slightly ominous start to uh, uh, a short relationship. But, um, yeah, that's how it happened. I think I think he got a lot of that, actually, because I think Kristen Hirsch also did the same thing to him and um, said no. Yeah, similar language, in fact, I can remember from that yeah. interview. So I think, yeah, he probably quite used to being told told that information. Yeah, he was, he was used to it. He, he, he would have been surprised if it hadn't, if it, if it hadn't happened. <laughs> he would have been disappointed and was yeah. signing the wrong band. And then obviously John Peel, you got a John Peel session quite soon as well, which was that... Yeah, that, that, was, that was because we'd signed to 4AD. And, it, you know, it's just, I think 4AD had a, a, a fairly good relationship with peel and 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 the program and so you know it wasn't as exciting it wasn't as exciting as 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 if we had got the uh the session you know on our own before signing that that would have been really exciting it was just like you can do a peel session if you want and so and you know we we're all huge fans of the program so yes of course we did it yes and, uh, we had our little moment with Buffin, Buffin Griffin. Yes. And insisted on tuning tuning uh the drum set for about 
two hours or something, eating into our valuable time. He was a he was a strange man. I don't. I think other people have said it, but I, I don't remember him doing anything particularly useful. I think I think the engineer at the you know who's on the on the job on that day did all the hard work and after um buffin had, had tuned the drums he probably went to the pub yes this is true this is all very true so then obviously the the first album comes out comforts of madness and you get gil norton as as a producer is is he producing this with john fryer um we did sessions with we did sessions with them separately they never worked together on on uh, any of the tracks so about half of it was done by John Fryer and about half of it was done by Gil Norton. Yes. What was the reasoning for that? Did that was that just the way it happened or were you did you have some moment in between one and the other? I think Ivo was trying to find who was going to be the best the best producer for us. Um and so we did you know, a number of days with e- with each of them, and it seemed like the the finished finished tracks, but all had a kind of interesting character to them, and that they could work together as a as a complete LP. So, I don't think there was any huge. Um, purpose behind having two different completely different producers yes at that stage had you um had you been surprised that how not easy but sort of how smoothly the the band were operating in the direction you were going you know sort of starting the band tick this you know do gigs get a label do john peel get the first album have a sort of some amazing producer on the, the on your debut album did it feel quite straightforward at that stage to be honest, I don't really remember, but um, I think we were we were conscious of being extremely lucky. Um, but I guess if if you're, as I said before, if you're making the right noise at the right time, and you firmly believe that. Um, You're doing the best that you can. You just, you know, you're, you're too busy doing the, do, you know, doing the writing, doing the gigs. To you don't, you don't really sit down and think about what's going on when it's all happening that fast. Yeah. So we had we had a, a huge amount of good luck. In uh, one of the reasons that I'm living in Japan is because we were offered a, a Japanese tour. Um, I'm not sure if I think we might have been the first four AD band to to do to be offered a Japanese tour, and that was mind blowing. Would you like to go to Japan? <laughs> that's that's a question that you can only have one answer to. Yes, get me on the plane, and it was the, one of the most psychedelic. <laughs> Um, experiences I've ever had um, I can't remember I guess it would have been 91 was the first time we toured Japan couldn't speak any Japanese couldn't read anything um, it was just 
a very very surreal experience um, and um because it's interesting that the, the bands especially sarah records their bands seem to be huge in japan did they also have the same love for the pearl saints was that was it one of those my god because a lot of people have said they've they often turned up looked at the arena went who's going to be playing here tonight and they went you are and it's like but we've been playing in front of just 100, 200 people in the UK, and now we, you want us to play in front of thousands, and they all know our lyrics. Did you have a slightly similar experience? I don't. We we didn't play huge venues. We were. It, how many how many people does the Norwich Arts Centre hold? Is that two hundred and fifty? Yeah. Well. Okay. 200. We were playing similar kind of venues in the UK, and then in Japan we were playing places that are probably double that. But yeah. it was a bit of a kind of Beatlemania kind of experience. So hilarious and infuriating and frightening in equal measures. And did you have a manager at that stage of the, the, the journey? Yeah, 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 we had a manager. We, we shared a, a manager with Slow Dive for a while. Right, yes. And, 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 did, uh, and were they useful? I think some bands have to have a manager because there's no there's no leader of the band who is who who can tell the other members what's going to happen. And we were one of those kinds of bands. We were, you know, kind of like a, a rudderless ship. And um, instead of bickering between members of the band, we just we just held the abuse at our manager. Right. So, I, mean, he, I don't. I. Uh, I guess he he probably did do some work and 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 get stuff done for us, but um, I don't know if he was hugely useful. Yes. When you came to do the second album, is this where Meryl appears in Meryl? the scene? Yes. Meryl she... Barham. Yeah. Yeah. So how does how does she become part of the band? We needed an extra guitarist, and um, Ashley Horner uh, was, I think, at the, he was, the Edsel Auctioneer were also getting busy. So we started looking around for another guitarist, and somehow, somehow, um, I guess somebody from Lush must have recommended Meriel. So we invited her up to Leeds. Got in, got her into the rehearsal room, and within thirty minutes, it was obvious that she'd fit in perfectly. So we were that was extremely lucky. It's you know I, I'm sure it's not easy to join a band that's already been going a while. Yeah, um, it was the best thing. It really was the best thing that that could possibly have happened to uh, an all male band. Uh, to have that extra dynamic, um, it just it changes things. It it makes things a whole lot more pleasant, and you know, even if I say the word diversity, diversity, it it sounds stupid, but it's just it does it changes things. It changes the the way the music occurs. And so it, it was. It was very, very 
useful. Yes, I do. I do it's, remember. It was, it was a good thing. A good thing for the band. Yes, I, I seem to remember an interview with a member of um, Jefferson, not with me, but hearing Jefferson Airplane guitarist saying that having Grace Slick in the band was quite a huge. They he really wanted a woman in, you know, singer because it just would change that dynamic or the energy of a band if you want to use mm. such a word. So it yeah. did it have that, and also, I mean, this is this is kind of the classic album in ribbons, isn't it? That. Um, comes out your second album did the did the sort of creative process of putting that together was that very different to the debut album not really i don't think um it was harder because you know as anybody in a band knows the first album that you make you have years and years to 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 do it and then the second album you have to write and record and release it's expected that you're going to do that with, you know, within a, a short period of time. So it's always more difficult. But it was it was the same process as uh, as the first album. But Mario also started writing uh, some of the songs or producing ideas for the songs. Um, whereas in whereas for the first album, most of the original ideas were mine taken to the rehearsal room uh, or or sometimes in the case of songs like Sight of You that was just a, a jam really that, that evolved into a song yes but yeah nothing 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 really changed that much between the first and the second and who brought the lyrical content to the band who was the kind of the main writer for that that's that's also my fault really <laughs> I have to I have to take the blame for that and yes. where did where were you finding your inspiration? Where where was this coming from? Mm, psychedelics and uh, other other you know um, mind altering experiences. Yes, it was the it was that period, wasn't it? Really? Did you go? Did you did the Pell Saints? Did they play? Did you play Glastonbury at all? Yeah, we played. Yeah, we we played. I've, I've been to Glastonbury twice: once as a customer and once as a musician. So yeah, we did. We played on a very rainy afternoon following Galaxy 500, I think. So, right. yes, it was very surreal, but, but enjoyable. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I, don't think, the... I don't think we, were, we weren't really a, a festival band. I, no. I, in the last couple of days, I've, I've watched some of the highlights from this year's Glastonbury and there are some obviously some musicians who are born for the purpose of uh, appearing at Glastonbury and i don't we we weren't we weren't such performers no <laughs> we, were, we were i think we were i think we were probably as uncomfortable as as a band could get at Glastonbury Yes, I think you need the anthems, don't you? Really, and um, yes, it's a it's a big step from the art centres to the you know a stage, even if it's just the. I think it was like stage two or the NME stage in the late eighties and early nineties. That seemed I seem to remember seeing people like the Wooden Tops and uh, I don't know, lots of those indie bands from the eighties were appearing. My first Glastonbury was eighty seven, so it was all a bit of a muddy blur, really. So um, yeah, I think mine would have been. A bit earlier than that, probably eighty-five. I don't remember. I don't remember anybody who who I saw 
at the at the um at the festival at all but i think that was part of the course wasn't it no yeah absolutely you just kind of um wandered around trying to work out where you should be next but never be where your content- tent was where, where you left your tent the previous night yes thinking perhaps the microdot was a bit too strong who knows so um it's a tricky one isn't it did you i mean at that say what you know with indie bands you know in the in the 70s you know when bands got in in, in interviewed by people like whispering bob harris they'd always say it was all about the sex drugs and rock and roll for an indie band in the sort of late 80s early 90s what was the kind of the the kind of drink or drug of choice at this stage Probably the Mary Jane, the Mary Jane and the magic mushrooms that we'd go out picking oh, in yeah. uh, early in the early in the morning in the in the countryside. Find the cow shit, and then and you'll find the the little uh, liberty caps. Yes, yes. But, you have. know, a, a, a plenty of um, cherry wine, plenty of uh, uh, super tea. Yes. Did you, and did you stay, uh, did the band stay in Leeds during this time? Yeah, yeah. We we never, you know, went down to London to uh, to be where, where the, you know, the industry movers were. We no. were perfectly happy to be in Leeds. I know. And, There's uh, a, I did notice that Cher- Cherry Red Records has got another compilation coming out with the this one is going to be a Leeds collection of about a triple CD box set with yeah, various I just, bands. I just noticed that today. Um, yes. I uh, looked and I looked down the I looked down the um the track listing and I can't say that I'm particularly fond of anything that's on it. No, I would have including um, in, including our own track. Right. I, Did I, you I, I, what? Who do they make these compilations for? I, I, I really don't understand it. I mean, Cherry Red, you know, I've got some wonderful albums on on that label, including lots of Eilis and Garza albums. There's an album by The Misunderstood, which was uh, like a uh, a 60s band that was championed by Peely. That's amazing. But I don't, I just don't, I don't really under, understand these endless compilations that they churn out well I've is, there any, is there any rhyme and reason to them or they are they just um is it just a sausage machine it's probably a sense of the sausage machine and archiving isn't it really i think um you know they started there was a liverpool compilation a manchester one there was a sheffield one and then obviously they thought you know we we can now get a little bit of a scene together with leeds and um obviously this one has has you the people was it like cud and they, and obviously there was the the bridewell taxis ghost dance the pell saints sight of you it's, they... it's hardly a pillows and prayers is it no pillows and prayers was was a like a groundbreaking amazing album for 99p and i don't think i don't think this three cd comp of of leeds bands is 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 going to be remembered in 20 years or how, how many years ago was um, Pillars and Prayers? Probably forty years now. Forty-two years. Probably. Yeah, yeah. This this Leeds compilation will be forgotten next year. Yes, it could be. I don't know. It, it might be another. You might find nah. yourself suddenly getting another. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, we did, um, I mean, because one of the bands that I remember because of the fans being everywhere, Chumbawamba and Anarcho Punks. Did you ever get into yeah. the squatting punk scene in Leeds or was that any, no. did, did that ever come into your orbit? No. Or, or Not conscious? at all. Not at all. I mean, the, the difference between the squats and the places where you paid to live was negligible. So, I mean, the, you know, the housing conditions in Leeds were, were in the in the places that we lived, uh, back to backs, and pretty uh, basic. I think you could you could call them. But no, um, we were aware of Chumbawamba, and I think. Um, one of our friends played drums for them at some point, but um, no, didn't really have anything else to do with them, or for that matter, any any other bands really in Leeds apart from um, a Sarah band called Gentle Despite, which was the the band of a guy called Simon Simon Westwood, who sadly passed away from I think it was maybe cancer. About ten years ago, he was he was a good friend, and we used to do a lot of gigs with them, uh, with Gentle Despite, and uh, but but really, there, I guess there was a scene in Leeds, but I, <laughs> I, I wasn't. I don't think we, apart from the Edsel auctioneer who lived in the same street as us, we didn't really knock around with any of the other bands. No, it won't be like the um, the Britpop musical that will be written one day by somebody. You know, everybody living in Cam Camden. And, Let's hope um, it won't be. No, but um, I'm sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be the new theatre audience in 10 years' time who'll want to watch. They won't want Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, will they? They won't Britpop the musical. So there you go. The great war between Oasis and Blur. Okay, they, they, can, they can have it. <laughs> I'm not going to argue about it. They can have it. They can, they're quite welcome to it. They are welcome. But then, so what happens to you in '93? Because this is—is is this where you do your Ziggy Stardust moment? Yeah, that's what happened. I did, I, I did my. <laughs> I, I almost left the band before in ribbons because it was obvious that. I wanted to go in a different experimental direction and at least um, Graham, the guitarist, and Chris, the drummer, wanted to go in more of a mainstream pop direction. And it was uh, just untenable. So I think um, the second album came out. We did a short tour of the States with Ride and I we came back and I said, that's it. I'm done. But, you know, that that was that was a, a good old, you know, more or less five or six years. And if if you're not childhood mates, then it you know, there's a lot of a lot of stress and that's that's um surmountable if the music is still being made joyfully. That's the only that's the only thing that matters. And as soon as that, as soon as that becomes un, un unenjoyable, mm -hmm. then then it, the only thing you can do is move on, find find more musicians to play with. So I did it. Yes. God, that's that's quite a 
a moment, isn't it, really? Then did you quickly sort of get together with Chris for your next musical project? Yeah. Um, I think I'd met him via a fanzine writer called Karen Ablaze, I think. Do you remember Ablaze, fans, the, the Ablaze fanzine? No. Um, well, living in, in the uh, the jungles of East Anglia, probably it didn't get that far. But um, no. <laughs> um, I think he he was, Chris Trout was going out with um, Karen Ablaze at that time. And we, we got chatting and we started going to the pub and talking about music. And before it was, you know, it was obvious that he had a lot of enthusiasm and, and as I did. So we started going to a little studio in Sheffield called Neptune Studios, which was run by a, a guy called Duncan Wheat. Right. Lovely, lovely, gentle synesthetic engineer um and doing starting started to do demos there and right. that's and that's the exact moment when i uh, discovered how to uh use a a primitive atari computer uh hooked up to a very cheap midi keyboard and also to uh uh uh, a Fostex X15 four track, which you could which you could sync to the computer by striping one of the tracks of the four track machine with Simpty code. So once when you pressed the play button on the four track recorder, that would kick the computer to start playing in in um, synchronous mode. Right. So yeah. I moved from a band which was very primitive, mostly you know, mostly guitars, bass, drum, to to a band where the only limitation was your imagination. And what influences were you drawing on, or were you just very excited at this stage and were able to sort of just go with what what was being created in the studio? I don't really remember talking about influences. We, in in the same way that songs, Pale Saint songs, got written, um, the Spoonfed Hybrid songs just, you know, appeared in that magical way that um, if you spend enough time sitting down with uh, with a keyboard or a, a guitar or a bass or anything and you and you you have creative desires eventually you'll start the, the ideas start to flow yes so mm -hmm. i don't think either of us had any idea what was going to happen but we knew that we were going to use samplers keyboards midi computers because it was just a you know it was a way of getting things done without having four members of a band squabbling it was just two members of a band squabbling and uh and it was a totally different way of working and it was very very exciting knowing that you know you could you could steal 
a sound from anywhere and use it. Yes, well, that's good. Because you brought the album out. That came out very quickly on Guernica Records, didn't it? Which was, was that an offspring of 4AD? Yeah, yeah. Once that came a short, out... A very, a very short-lived um, experiment on Ivo's behalf, I think. 93. It came out as, at, at the same time as... Um, around the, the same time as uh, Euphoria by Insides. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it was only about a year of of uh, me meeting Chris to that getting released. It was fairly fast, yeah. Yes, and then from that album, you do two more singles or EPs, and then that's... Yeah, kind of, um, I think I'd, I might have already moved to London by that time, so it just, it, it really made doing another album almost impossible you couldn't send audio files through you know to people over the internet in those days um so the 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 other two releases were were kind of patched patched together Yes, interesting. So did I mean as we as we trundle through the John Major years to to new labor, you sort of your your London experience, you then sort of get another musical kind of um combo. Yes, you start working with another artist as well. Were your was your sort of creative juices kind of flowing in full force at this at this time? I'm I was just um, very pleased to have lots of, you know, to have different people to collaborate with. People who were on the same kind of quest as I was for, you know, certain musical surprises. Yes. I think you could, I think you could kind of characterise it as... Ivo said, I, I, I presume we're talking about me working with Warren DeFever of His Name is Alive. Yes, that's right. Um, so Ivo said, do you want to go to America and do some recording with Warren DeFever? And I loved his music and his, his, his fantastic, crazy, maverick approach to mixing and, and uh, collaging uh, that he had and has. Um, so I, I jumped at the opportunity. I went over to to um, Livonia and lived in Warren's Warren's house for a couple of weeks while we wrote the album. And then I think we finished the album, presented it to to Ivo, and I think that was around the time where he was kind of removing himself from 4AD, and I don't think he had the energy to uh to deal with it and he said no i'm not going to i'm not going to release it you can have the tapes and do what you like with it right so it's um so so a, a bit upsetting but um it did get released in i guess it would have been 96 or somewhere around that time 95 i think maybe 95 yes. and it came out on a cassette in the, in the in the states in America, 
on a CD in France. Um, and that was about it, I think, until this year when it got re-released. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? You, you, because you worked together quite recently, haven't you? In two, was it about three years ago? Maybe a couple of years ago to do the Kingdom of Heaven extended EP. Yes. So they, yeah, amazing. Which it, and and that 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 EP, that EP's um, initial seed was made in about two thousand and five, when I'd only been living in Japan for a few years. And I, I'd, I'd gone to a flea market and I bought an instrument called the Taisho Goto. It's a kind of, it's a kind of a, a kind of a koto, you know, the Japanese instrument, the koto. Yes. Stringed instrument, but it's, it, it's made for school children to be able to reproduce the sound of a, of a koto very easily. And I wanted to learn how to, to, play this thing so i decided as a project to record a cover version of the kingdom of heaven by the 13th floor elevators fast forward 15 years and i think i was intending to put it on bandcamp more or less as it was and i sent it to warren and said can we can you help me clean it up can it, because the song had been very very badly recorded Yes, and he said, "He's he's he was just overjoyed." He said, "This is an absolute gem. We must give it a proper release." And we then got to work on filling out the rest of the EP with um, various improvisations and recordings of uh, kitchen sinks dripping and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting to to see how songs that have been lying dormant for decades can finally have their five minutes in the sun. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, this decade, the beginning of, was a great time for people to work on their archives and, um, yes, get things sorted out, which has been sort of festering in cupboards and boxes in the attic so um yes it was one of those moments so when so why did your project with warren finish was it just that you did that one album then ivo wasn't that keen so you thought well let's not keep plugging well, away again, on that. It, again he, he he was he was living in in, in um D detroit in livonia and i was living in in the uk and there was no way of really um up, up, other than either me going there for for a period of time or him coming to the UK it, there was no way of continuing it yes so it was but it, when... you know when um sometimes these things don't need to be extended projects they don't have to carry on sometimes the, the you know the best the best music is the first music that you make with somebody and if it if you can create a a uh, a cohesive album really there's no need to make another one yes this is it this is we're all relieved with the sex pistols aren't we really on that front i'm not sure their second album would be that good so um yes that's tricky so when you came to do your solo album which was was it called oh friendly science orchestra was this where where, where were you live was this back in london that you created this album 
the, the miniature album, the yes. album that's only about 10 minutes long. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was, I was living in London. I was recording in my spare room and I just decided to release a seven inch with 12 songs on it. And amazingly, I got a phone call from the enemy, from somebody at the enemy saying, did I have a photograph that they could use because it was going to be single of the week? So um, it was fun to do. And I had help from um, other musicians, including Simon, previously mentioned Simon from Gentle Despite, and my friend uh, Rie Takeuchi from the Japanese his band Luminous Orange. Um, who else was on it? Um, D. Rothen, who now releases music on the Clay Pipe label, played some, uh, probably some pedal steel on it, as he did when we did the Saw and Steel album a couple of years later. Yes. So it was it was mainly a solo project, but with help from other people. Yes. Did you did you enjoy that experience? Was that um, was it easier be, because you were sort of the main person leading it? I was I was in, solely in charge, and because the pieces were a minute or less each, it meant it meant that I wouldn't get bored. Yes, this is this is always a good thing. This is good. Did you feel that as an artist, you had changed a lot in that sort of ten years from the the early years of the Pale Saints to sort of being quite a serious muso at this stage? <laughs> was I a serious muso by that time? <laughs> I hope not. I hope I was still a, um, uh, a, an attempted musician with plenty of ideas, but certainly not not a serious. I, I don't think I've ever been a serious muso. Yes, but you were sort of exploring quite a lot of different soundscapes and sonic qualities, weren't you? I mean, you, you're, yeah. you're sort of your fascination with sound. Obviously, Delia Dab, uh, Derbyshire was sort of massive influence on you at this stage, wasn't she? It, 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 I think Delia Derbyshire has been a, a huge influence throughout my life, and it, it only gets deeper the more I read or see it, you know, concerning her her amazing uh, career and the the incredible recordings that that she was a part of uh, or, you know, made uh, as a sole, you know, um, musician, as a, a solo recording musician, absolutely incredible work. Yes. Yeah. I defy any musician to not be impressed by what she did. Yes, absolutely. I know it's um it's quite something really her her ability to uh, yes record such amazing sounds. Did you as as we sort of trundled into the next millennium, then you sort of there's another project you form as well, Wing Disc at this point. Where, where are you still in London or have you sort of gone to Japan at this stage? Um, I think Wing Disc might have been we might have started that um, with Mark Trammer, uh who was in the Montgolfier brothers at the time. Um, I think it started before I moved to Japan and continued while, while I was still kind of finding my feet in Japan. I think, when did that come out? Was that around 2002? 
2003, I think it was. Yeah. Right. The previous year, Warren had actually come to to Japan and we'd done a, an improv recording at a Buddhist temple. Which was a, a very pleasant experience. Um, and then Mark Trammer came out to Japan to visit me and we carried on finishing off the wing disc EP. So, yeah, that was um, that was 2003. This is the one time is running out EP. Yeah. There you go. What was the reason for going to Japan? Was it sort of. Um... Yes, I was, was bored it... of England. Right. I was, I was just so bored that I, that I had to do something to throw, the, throw a spanner in the works. Yes. And I thought, surely it's got to be interesting to be a foreigner for a couple of years. And how did you find the culture at that stage when you went to Japan? Um, bewildering. Um, but... but, it, but the first, I think, my first five years in Japan were probably five of the most psychedelic years of my life. Completely um, unaided by chemicals, just um, learning to speak a new language, which I'd been studying a bit in the in in the UK, but then having to actually use it every day, and wondering. What pro what problems I was going to have to encounter and solve every day for the for the first few years it 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 makes you more alive than you've ever been before. Yes, I would imagine. Did you feel ever sort of kind of bewildered and and slightly intimidated at this stage? Ah, uh, bewildered, but but never ever homesick. I never ever. Um, had the desire to go back to the UK. Yes, that's and, it. And, and, I, and I won't do now. I, I, I'm, I'm certain that I'll die here. Hopefully, not not you know not that, next not, year, not not, not, not next <laughs> week or or particularly how did, how did, soon. But um, how, how did your dad take your um, career choice? Had he had he accepted it at this stage that this was what you were doing and and you were okay with it? Um, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. He, yes. he, he never. He, I think he said, um, "When are you going to get a proper job?" A, a few times, and and when he didn't get the answer he wanted, he, I think he just gave up after a while. Yes, they always do, don't they? So then, with with the next two decades in Japan, you do a lot of different musical projects and different collaborations. But do you also then sort of concentrate on being a producer and and Record, you know, recording for other people. I don't think I've ever done any production work, unless right. you know, unless you know to the contrary. No, I don't. <laughs> I, I just kind of having to guess, guess, <laughs> guess what else you were up to. I just wondered how you were then, sort of spending, you know, your time doing, you know, musical projects. Mm. Um, I had, I had about two or three years where I had quite bad depression and didn't listen to music let alone make any music but apart from that three-year period I was always dabbling and dipping in and out of music and and uh 
helping other bands a little bit here and there. Um, 2009, uh, we finally released the Saw and Steel Many Moons Ago Go album, which is one of my favorite recordings that I've done. Just Saw and Pedal Steel. No singing. Um, and, and this is uh, around that was that was 2009 and that was a, a digital only release although um uh, a very nice uh friend in a, in uh in the states who had a label called Farago put out a 7 inch picture disc with a couple of tracks from the album so right. uh, yeah so that got traction as well. Yes. So that was a collaboration you did with a guy called David. With David Rothen, who who's recording uh name these days, his professional uh name is D. Rothen. Right. And he releases stuff on Clay Pipe, as I mentioned. And I guess after that, I did a little bit of singing with my friend Stefano Guzzetti who's Italian, who who these days releases mainly instrumental piano work. And looks like I didn't do very much in the years from 2013 to 15. But after that, I met a Japanese guy called uh, Terako Tereo. And this, he is, is absolutely amazing musician. And uh, I, I encountered him at uh, a gig at, at, at a Spanish restaurant where he was playing um, a, a solo gig with drums, bass, um, and various other electronic boxes. Absolutely incredible. And I thought, wow, if I can, if I can somehow con that guy into doing some music with me, that's going to be fun. <laughs> and uh, I, I managed to convince him to do it. So we, we uh we formed a a little unit called Big Beautiful Blue Bottle and did some gigs, did some recording, recorded an improvised album, which we put out on Bandcamp, the wonderful, the wonderful Bandcamp. Um and then he decided to retire from music because he had a because he, he had a daughter. And that was his new project. Right. There you go. So that that's, was... that's that's one of the most um, uh, startling musical career decisions that I've ever encountered, that you would stop making music because you'd had a daughter. But that's the kind of, I think that's the kind of person that he is. He's just, you know, he's he's got one main project at a time. And, uh, and that, and his daughter became that project. Blimey, that is quite um, that is quite um, decisive. You, you please look him up on YouTube. I think that there should be um, a few uh, um, videos of him playing stuff on on YouTube still. Terraco, Terrell. Yes. Um, yeah, I was I was extremely fortunate to have. Uh, been able to make music with him and the, the last the last gig that I did before COVID hit Japan 
was a was a gig with him as big Be- Be- big beautiful blue bottle and it was in t- the, the gig was entitled destroy the comforts of madness so i think around that time the re-release of comforts of madness came out so we decided i thought it would be a good idea to reinterpret those songs using samples of the original songs and really messing it up and um so we did the destroy comforts of madness gig amazing that is yes it's it's a lot of fun to go back and try to mess with your with your own work Absolutely. And then, because then just before the COVID experience, though, Isolated Gate, which is now your new album that's just come out, but you'd, had you already brought out a mini EP before this last one that's um, just released, 2023? Um, two, two, two long EPs uh, preceded the, the album. Uh, the first one was called... In fact, we had other we had other releases which were a digital only, and and one which I made into a uh, a toy lathe cut. So, a record which I made in my own kitchen on a a toy record lathe. Wow! That's... So that, that was one of that was one of the releases. TLC was made into a, a toy lathe cut. Um, the other ones were okay. The first isolated gate was Hapax Leg- Legomenon, and the second one was uh, No Heart, No Home. So one in twenty twenty one, one in twenty twenty two, and then the album came out recently this year. Yes, by God, it's it's. So is that a collection of all the material you had recorded before? This latest one, Universe in Reverse. Um, Tim and I met in about 1918. No, no, 2018. We couldn't. We, it, that would have been that would have been a long time ago. Uh, not not 1918. Um, Just before. We met, yeah, we, we met about five years ago and started make, working on tracks around that time and. So we had quite um, quite a lot to choose from, and so yeah, we just gradually put them out, and um, I guess uh, that's does that does that answer your question? Yes, no, it does. So I just kind of because I've just got a copy of your latest album, you know, and I just wondered what it was that, um, yeah, so this is the material that you've been collecting or created in the last couple of years with Tim. So that's that's that release. So is that yeah. just going to be on Bandcamp and digital download only, or did you say no, it's no, going to be? No, there's, there's 100 CDs and 100 LPs, that's if you can all... find one. If you, yes, it's tricky actually. Yeah, and then what, what are you sort of working on at the moment for your next project? Um... Probably it'll be I it, I'm going to do some recording um, with a sax player, um, a, a, an improvised album, sax and musical saw, and also 
more probably something which more people will enjoy is an album that I'm making with Stefano Guzzetti, which will be me singing and him playing his uh, string quartet friends. Hmm. So, is so this that's gonna... an album. It'll be an album. I don't know what what name it'll be under, but um, that's that's um, pretty close to being finished. Yes. And what was that? Were you working on it individually and then sending each other files? Were Were you able to sort of work together on the pieces? Well, he lives in he lives in um, Sardinia. Right. That so would be difficult. It's it's tricky. My arms are fairly long, but not that long. Not that long, actually. So do you sort of, who's the person who leads the project or are you taking it in turns on that? No, no, it's, it's a collaboration as 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 Isolated Gate is with Tim Kosh. Yes. So it's, you know, the ideas flow back and forth, as do the files and uh, the arguments and, you know, it, everything else. And... Um, we're both jointly responsible for any hospital visits caused by our music. Yes, sort of stress and heart related. Did you, I mean, does that feel quite, how do you know when a, a piece is finished when you're doing it, you know, sort of via sending files? Is it difficult to say, no, that's going to be it now, we're not going to touch it anymore? Or is there always that temptation to sort of just kind of have a little tweak? Well. A track, in a sense, a track is never completely finished, but you just take a snapshot of it at a particular time and you decide, okay, that's the snapshot we're going to release now. As long as the as long as you don't lose all the files, you can then revisit it on a, on a different occasion and mix it in a completely different way. Yes. So I, I always think of of songs having multiple lives, and they can exist. They, they can they can take on a, a, a second existence, second or third or fourth existence, as soon as you decide to go back and do something to what you've already done to 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 try a different focus or. Maybe you decided that the the singer was completely useless on that track, and you want to replace it with some dogs barking. Yes, and it, and it takes on a new life. <laughs> so finished, but not finished. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, you know, having done this show for such a long time. How everybody from that period—I say everybody, but most people—are still very committed and passionate about making music it's it's it never goes away does it you know there's very few the, people who the, the enjoyment that, that you that you if you if you love music and you're completely obsessed by it the the amazing experience of being presented with a musical idea whose origin you don't really understand that that magic never gets old and it's it's a constant it's almost like an addiction for most for most people that i know that make music yes 
And do you have any kind of sense of community or form of community where you live now? Do you sort of mix or meet up with much, others? Much more than I ever did in, in the UK. I don't, I, I live in a, I live just outside Osaka in a very, very uh, small town. It's almost not really a town, but uh, you know, it's too small to be a town, but um I I feel the sense of community here like I never did in the UK. Maybe that maybe that's because I, you know, I moved around a fair bit in, in the UK. Um but I think um maybe maybe it's just a a a a facet of Japanese culture that if you want to if you want to be part of a community um you can be there's no you know there's there's no discrimination against foreigners if if you integrate yes and and and, and i i've always been happy to integrate you know some people think they can live in a country without learning the language and I was never under that impression. I knew that the only way that I would be able to integrate would would be by learning to speak the language and, you know, getting over my embarrassment at making mistakes. Yes, it's quite it's quite a humbling experience, really, isn't it? Humbling and, as I said, psychedelic. And <laughs> and I think moving back to the UK now would be just as as much of a culture shock as it was moving here in in 2000 yes it would probably you probably wouldn't recognize the place and the and i think it's also things about the attitude and the culture it's probably it would probably be quite shocking if you came back actually you'd probably be horrified well, by i do i do go back occasionally because my mum's still alive but um it i so I, I do I do see uh British society. Um I'm still horrified that um the royals don't pay for their own parties. Um and because my mum's still alive, I you know, I, I keep up with the, the UK news and so I've got something to talk to her about, keep her keep her mind active. So I do see it, but um, apart from uh, apart from not being able to meet my friends, I, I don't really miss it. No. Japan mm -hmm. is a different place, but it's but it it has the same components. Just they they're just different shapes. The components of life in Japan are all fam fairly familiar, but they're they, they taste different. They look a bit different. They do things slightly differently, not not better, not worse, but in a different way. And seeing see, seeing the way that uh, two different cultures so, so solve the same problem, that's fascinating. Yes, it was interesting because last week I did an interview with a woman who who went to seven Burning Man festivals, and one of them was in Japan. She was saying what the culture was like in for her in in that kind of you know week festival of the Burning Man, and and the sort of well, 
out of the seven, the one in Japan was probably the her, she said it was probably the most profound one of the the ones that she had gone to in that year because um, of just the way the Japanese people are. So it was quite it was quite interesting hearing her take on what it was like there. I would imagine that any Burning Man festival is is quite a an incredible experience. So I I think it's probably not not wise to judge a country by a burning man festival in that country i think you i think that that kind of festival will it will attract the most creative and most unusual characters in 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 any country um but um if if she had a, if she had a good time at, at the festival then then she had a good time yeah mm. I, I think I wonder maybe she would have if she'd come to Japan and just done the normal tourist stuff, maybe she wouldn't have enjoyed it. Yes. Who knows? But you'd have to be you'd have to be pretty churlish really to come to come to a a, a country with a culture as, as different as Japan's and not be entertained for a couple of weeks. There's, you know, there's it just the eating just the, the you know the eating is amazing temples countryside shopping it's it's all kind of familiar but, but and yet very very different so um yeah i i don't think i've ever heard anybody say that they they were bored when when mm. they came to japan and uh, you'd have to try really hard Yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, just one thing, because just remembering now, did you ever do any collaboration or work with um, any members of the Heartthrobs by any chance? No. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't be able to name you a Heartthrob song. No, you would, though. Were were they they going around the same time as Pale Saints? Vaguely, yeah, they were playing the Norwich Arts Centre at the same, roughly the same time, and I, I think it was a bit to do with the connection of that. Um, is it Filigree and Shadows perfume, perfume Company? And I think they did one for the Heartthrobs as well as the Pale Saints and right. Lush and various other. And I didn't, I didn't know if you had collaborated with any of the members. Oh no, no, not familiar um, with their music at all. Well, fair enough. You, you know, it's. It's easy. It's easy indie pop. Really, there's nothing complicated about the Heartthrobs. That's a bit of a sweeping statement, I know. But um, so look, so if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular you would have just told that person with all those years and of experience and wisdom that you've built up that you would thought, oh yes, that would have been a good thing to have known? But that's like I would say, if a if a strange apparition from the future tries to give you advice pretending to be you at a at an older age then just tell them what i told ivo watts russell yes tell them to fuck off tell them to fuck off and tell a granddad <laughs> yes this is true Every, everybody has everybody has um regrets but you but the best thing to do with regrets is to forget about them Yes. And if you if you if you if you are the kind of person who listens to advice 
then you're never going to make the mistakes which lead to something interesting happening in your life. Most most interesting stuff happens because you've made mistakes. And if you if you find a way of turning those mistakes into uh, something productive, then and you and you're able to um, turn the turn the bad into good, turn the mistake into something interesting and enjoyable, then um, you should just carry on making your own mistakes. Yes, I think I think that's. Um, I think Brian Eno said something slightly similar when he worked with David Bowie on those famous albums in the late seventies. And him, you know, it's it's all good. We're not we're not flying a plane. No one's going to die if, when this record comes out. So let's not worry about it. Yeah, and that's that's Brian all over, isn't it? Really, the classic period. And um, yes, there you go. Oh well, look, Ian, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. We get together at last. You're very welcome. <laughs> this has been good. Now, um, yes, I'll definitely check out more of the Bandcamp pages that you've got here because um, you've got quite a lot here, haven't you? Do you um, do you ever keep in touch with any of the musicians that you played with back in the day from your earliest bands? Um, not with members of Pale Saints, really, although um, very occasionally with Mariel. Um, I'm in touch with Warren fairly often, Mark. Yeah, um, most of the most of the people that I keep in, that I've I've worked with were either friends first or became friends. Yes. So I I do keep in touch with them, and when there's an interesting idea or someone wants to to uh, get a project going, then um, it's always easier the second time. Yes, absolutely. And I guess you've got your setup there beautifully working that um it's a lot a lot smoother the yeah, technology. The studio is is a finely honed machine. Yes. <laughs> this is great. Well look, thank you Everson. What time is it in Japan by the way? It's half 9 in the evening now. Oh, okay. God, you've gone that way. Right. Well, look, I'll let you get on. It's midday here. But anyway, look, thank you again. And it was You're great very welcome. To, to see you at the Art Centre all those decades yep. ago. Anyway, let me know look, when it comes out. I will. I will. Take if care. If it comes out. It will come out. <laughs> it, will, it will be out soon. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> thank nice you, talking Ian. to you. Bye, see you bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was uh, me in conversation with Ian Masters. And um, yes, I'll put various links in the notes below. Uh, this has been the C86 Show, David So If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Yes, indeed. I know. It was a little bit of a pause, dramatic, though. And all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.